Hi everyone, welcome to the Mark for Glory podcast. I'm Mark and this is Crystal. Hi. And uh, we're recording episode number 35 of season two. I think we said last time that we were on episode 35, but this is actually episode 35. But yeah, um, yeah, today we're speaking with Mary Collins who um, who has MS and has been on quite a journey uh, discovering different health things that have been working for her. So she's going to talk about that and about her journey. So um, let's get started. Hi, Mary. Uh, Hi, Mark. Hi, Crystal. Just a minute. We'll wait Why for this lawnmower. Thing. Keep a lawnmower going <laughs> on over here. I mean, oh, I'll no. close the door. Yeah. So we can edit this out. We can yeah. edit out anything we want. But yeah. okay. if you don't like the way you explain something or we explain something, just tell us and say, pause. You know, okay. Sure. Out. <laughs> um some of the some some things we like to leave in for authenticity's sake because Right. You know, we're we're disabled people, and we don't want to try and make put out this polished perfect thing, and then people are left wondering what disability is really. But having said that, uh, we would certainly, if you wanted to cut something out, we'd certainly honor that. So we we have filmed a lot of you know that the past generation, the last. 15, 20 years or so has been more of like people telling other people to fake and this how you make it. Right. Well, we think it should be like face it and embrace it, you know. And so and, and we so we want people to see, yes, we have to disability, we have to do things over and over and over until we, you know, get it how we need it. But we don't always have to correct everything and Society as a whole wants us to be perfect or wants us to fit their normal life. And we want to show people you don't have to do that. Right. Oh, plus, you know, you're real people having a real conversation with another real person. This isn't some kind of slick TV production or something. So I I appreciate authenticity. It's great. so I know this keeps coming in and going out. I, it's I can't hear it at all. Really? Oh, good. Okay. okay. Cool. Okay. But I mean, uh, Crystal is ready to be candid at anything, but editing a lawnmower out from over our conversation might be problem. So I'd rather just wait until sure. I know it's gone. <laughs> I'm pretty sure Zoom can block it out. Yeah, right. But because we're both, we have speech issues, we have to use mics and mm-hmm. to pick up our enunciation and stuff like that. And we're not sure if this is going to pick up. Yeah, I hear you. Right. <laughs> right. And it's better in this this case is better to be safe than sorry. We don't want to do all this good work and then go back to editing and find out 
of your salon. No, we don't want to uh, message you and be like, uh, yeah. why did that work? I couldn't yeah. hear any of it. Yeah, because no one, I mean, then it, it just becomes a big, you know, I mean, you're, you're busy and we're busy and, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes it's tough to get motivated to do stuff, especially if you did it great the first time. And you have to do it over again and yeah anyways and what's what you're going you're going further away okay okay so yeah. as i said i can't hear it at all so i'll have to yeah. wait for you guys to give me the right the okay so should we should i do the intro again or should we just it's coming back why it's coming back now or I used to have a thing that you you remember pay phones, right? <laughs> Before we had yeah. cell phones, I yeah. would have, I would have to make an important business call on a on a pay phone somewhere, um, and it would be perfectly quiet, you know, just some sort of back street of a business area, and then all of a sudden the blower guy would come with the leaves, and and it would just it was it was happening to me almost every single time, and I thought, what is this, you know? Well, how did I summon this guy? Just when I was trying to. No, I just this thing on Paula. So uh, let me know when you. Uh, so hanging around. Give them like a few minutes. Yeah. So uh, what's, uh, let us know, is there anything that uh, been happening in your world since we last talked? Yeah, a couple of things. Um, this morning, I signed up for an online level one training in what's called QHHT. Um, it's a form of hypnosis that was developed by a woman named Dolores Cannon. You may or may not know of her. She passed away a few years ago. But I've been really interested in um, past life regression and different kind of interesting modalities of healing. And I was really attracted to her particular method because I had heard her describe how she went through the sort of conventional training and then got some ideas on how to change it. So I signed up for that today and I've been working on it a good bit of the day. And um, you know, it's gonna take some time but I, I sort of see that as a tool in the toolbox. Well, that's interesting. Helping people sort of um, maybe on a subconscious level, either releasing something or can be just stress or whatever, but so right. just getting started on that. And otherwise um, there's been a lot of things happening with my local food farm connection. They've been doing some good classes and getting very uh, excited about the collaborations that are happening there on trying to do things that are more local and more community-based. So that's that's pretty much it. It's always the way to go, you know. Some it's been we've sort of been brainwashed and conditioned away from that by the WalMarts and the Amazons of the world. Right. Yeah, right. Exactly. And, uh, yeah, and 
it's hard to do sometimes, especially like living on a budget. You want to be, you know, we know that eating locally is like the healthiest, but it's not always affordable, right? And yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, that's it. That's true. And um, I'm a big advocate of our local farmers market. Happens every Saturday morning. And I just found out that they're, they're doing a lot of development and projects downtown. And so it's supposed to move into this new smart park that they're creating. And I just found out from the manager of the market that they are now saying, oh gosh, we're not sure if we have room for this, which is really their way of saying that we don't think that this is um, exciting enough or something that enough people are participating in, which is kind of disappointing and sad to me um, because we can't stay where we are uh, anyway. And this was kind of for two years, they've been saying, oh, look how great this is gonna be. You know, when you're gonna be there and you'll be right next to all these new apartments and people will be just coming out and shopping. And so, I don't know, I, I my husband says I'm ahead of the curve which I take as a compliment, but sometimes it's a little hard waiting for other people to get it. That is, it is really, we're, we're lying that right now. Like, we're just like, okay, let the world figure out what the heck it's doing. And right. And then put us back in the big fiasco mix. Yeah, yeah. exactly, exactly, exactly. And, uh, there's, you know, the last couple of years have been, for me, actually, an opportunity to think about what's important and what's not important. And I've been a little bit surprised how many people I know are just wanting to get, like, back. Let's get back to normal. Yeah. <laughs> what, what, what is normal? <laughs> yeah. So it's been an interesting, you know, well, there's the whole COVID thing, and that was two years, and then uh, pretty much it, a lot of the stuff that happened from that, a lot of people to see all the stuff going on that was wrong, and all the injustices, and all the uh, Stuff that didn't make sense. Yeah. And so now people are kind of, you know, trying to get right or trying to put new things in place because they figured out, you know, who people are and what they're about. And it's kind of, you know, so we're just being patient, waiting for people to get their stuff together. Right. <laughs> And uh, deciding who, you know, where the where where they're gonna land, you know, in the end. Yeah, for sure. What kind of person they're gonna be? Um. You want to go ahead, Mom? Yeah, I guess I'll give it a try and see what happens. <laughs> okay. I and I've been recording this whole time, so maybe. Um, we can use some of the uh, stuff we just talked about, or we'll see. Well, depending yeah. if, no. <laughs> we'll, we'll see how the conversation maybe, goes. Maybe. Sure, absolutely. Some, some of it. Yeah. yeah. Or we could certainly re, re talk about it during our session. Yeah. 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 Ye
Okay. Um, so let's go ahead and get started. I've done, we've done the intro, so let's just go into it. Second, okay. Well, are you sure that it wasn't started? When yeah, started? I didn't, I don't know about that. So maybe well, you want to just maybe just kind of start from the beginning and then you can start of the, yeah. the recording if you don't need it. Yeah, more practice never hurts. <laughs> um, hi, and this is the Journey Series podcast on Mark for Glory and Free Media. Hi, my name is Mark. I'm with Crystal, and today we're recording episode number thirty-five. It's actually episode number 35. I think you said that last time, but we were wrong. Um, but uh, today we're having a very special guest, Mary Collins, and she's here to talk to us about her MS diagnosis and her journey and how she's moving forward with her life. Um, so let's go ahead and get started with that. Hi, Mary. Hi, Mark. Hi, Crystal. You know, I think it's great. This is episode 35 because I was 35 when I was diagnosed with MS. Oh, that's great. So that, and I'm 63 now. Um, I've been really, really fortunate because except for the first year after diagnosis, when I was doing a lot of intentional changes in my diet, lifestyle, trying to trying to detox my body and listen to what it was trying to tell me. I've been pretty much symptom-free that whole time. But it isn't a fluke or like a spontaneous something. It's a very conscious day-by-day -day action. So in my case, I'm actually grateful for the diagnosis because it really made me stop in what was the middle of my life and say, what are the things that I would really value having in my life? And what are the things that I would miss out on if I were not able to, you know, continue in my life? Um, if, if you don't mind, um, just start us off at the, at the beginning, maybe what your life, tell us a bit about what your life was like before you got diagnosed, uh, how life was like for you going through the diagnostic process. Okay. Let's start there. So I was working with a business that did trade shows and mail order. And so we would sometimes, well, up to 27 weekends a year, we were on the road, you know, planes and vans or whatever, getting to these trade shows. So that in and of itself was probably pretty disruptive of my sleep and, you know, not the healthiest lifestyle. And um, probably the year leading up to that, I had really, be, I'd been working with that company for 11 years and I liked some of the people who were involved with it, but I really was ready to do something different. And I think I was kind of inside afraid to make a change. So I was just kind of stuck. And we were going to be doing a big trade show in Scandinavia that we'd been planning for two years, you know, like a week. And all of a sudden, one morning at work, my left eye was twitching and then it was blurry and I couldn't see very well. 
And I thought, well, maybe I'm just stressed. So, you know, went home a little early, rested. Next morning, same thing. It was a little bit worse. So it was a Friday and I have worn glasses or collect corrected lenses since third grade. So, you know, I had regular eye doctor and I called them that morning on Friday and they said, well, we normally close at noon on Friday, but we'll see you. And I was probably only there about 10 minutes and they sent me over to the university uh, neurology ophthalmology department. And I was able to drive myself. I mean, my vision wasn't that bad, but the whole way over there, I mean, this all happened so quickly. I really wasn't even thinking about it. I was just, well, okay. And they spent hours on Friday afternoon doing all different kinds of testing and looking at my eyes and various things. And I think it was about six o'clock or seven o'clock, they said, we want to send you over for an MRI tonight. And since it was April, it was, you know, dark fairly early. Uh, so I went over there and the technician said, have you uh, ever had an MRI before? Do you know anything about it? And I said, no. And he didn't really give me any sense of what it would be like. So I just remember being in that tube, you know, by myself, and he said it could get loud and don't move. And I was just pretty terrified. You know, it sort of seems like you're under like gunfire or something, at least in 1995 it did. And um, so uh, Monday morning, I went back and met with a team of neurologists and they said, yeah, you have all these lesions on your brain and your central nervous system. And, you know, it's pretty conclusively MS. But at that time, they um, wanted you to have two symptoms, and I only had one symptom, which was the ocular neuritis, which is often the first thing that causes people to get a diagnosis. And um, I had to go on this big trade show to Scandinavia the following week. So I got it together, and you know, the, it was just kind of a blur. And the first three of the four weeks that I was in Scandinavia, I was dealing with the ocular neuritis. I was starting to have fatigue. Plus it was just the, um, the stress of the diagnosis of you know what's gonna happen to me. Right. So, um, but I had told the neurologist as I was leaving their office, I'm gonna heal from this. And I was really determined so the last week that I was in uh, Finland, I was out touring around and I went to this castle called Turku Castle. And they had a um, display in Finnish and Swedish and English about the plague. And I thought, hmm, that's kind of appropriate and weird. And as I walked out of this dark castle, I realized that my vision was back. I could see. And so when I got back to the United States and I went back to see the neurologist, as they had said, they said, well, you didn't take the IV steroids, did you? No, you didn't do it. And they said, oh, well, we didn't tell you then, but you know, most people don't get their vision back like that. And, and you know, if they do, it takes a long time or whatever. So, um, 
anyway, that, you know, then I just really um, focused in on getting better. And after about two months, my employer of 11 years and I, who were also very good friends, mutually decided that I would just take a few months severance and leave the company because I, I really didn't want it. So again, that was kind of a forced but positive thing because I really didn't want to be doing it anymore. And he was terrified that I would get really sick and then he'd have to deal with that. So, so that was that. And then I just really, you know, began focusing on diet. Um, I eliminated gluten, I eliminated dairy. I started adding a lot more local fresh foods. And I know you don't want to talk about specifics and, and I won't, but I'm just saying I kind of, main point is I, I followed my own inner guidance and reading materials I found and thought, well, you know, this can't hurt. And so over a period of a few months, I think I learned a lot about my relationship to my body and my stress level and all that. We sort of can we unpack that for a minute? I mean, sure. uh, so a lot of, I think a lot of what the, whether, whatever, whatever um, methodology an individual takes to get better, it's kind of irrelevant. But I'm, we're kind of talked out of by like society and like, the medical establishment and whatever that science is the be all and the end all of everything. Don't trust yourself because we know what's best for you, right? For sure. Um, all right. Well, you know, with this, we want you to explain your journey and what you did. We just don't want you to try to sell somebody on what works for you and make them want to, you know, you can right. suggest things and talk about it. You can suggest things and talk about you, you know, that's fine. Sure. I was, we just didn't know where you were going and what you are about, because we've talked to so many people right. that are, you know, gung ho about, you know, they actually think that they want to pretend like they're in the disability community, but what they really want to do is sell their product. Oh, so, I, I, I don't like that either. And I've actually had some challenges within my own MS community, because I'm super happy for anyone who gets better or feels better. Right. But there are a couple people in particular that have a, have a certain theory and it's based on their experience, but then they try to translate that into some kind of universal thing. And uh, I just, I don't agree with that. Um, I think if there's one thing that I would say is, you know, a person's mindset and ability to listen to whatever messages they may be receiving from the experience, which is a very individual process. Clay, we want to hear all everybody's 
you know. One thing that I did. Not the same. One thing I did early on, which I later made a joke out of, was I was in a health food store and they were promoting flaxseed oil. And I had decided, okay, I'll read this little brochure. Again, it's 1995. You know, they didn't have, everything wasn't online and whatnot. I didn't own a computer at that time. And I read the brochure and I thought, well, you know, I've been thinking about omega-3 fats that, you know, I'd like to get a little more of that in my diet. So I, I did what I always do. I did like a triple check. I took the initial information. Then I tried to verify that independently somewhere else. Someplace, and I thought, okay, well, I don't see any downside to that. So for a few weeks, I was, you know, having like a couple tablespoons of this cold pressed refrigerated flaxseed oil a day. And so later I got a license, personal license plate, flaxseed. And so to me, that was you're just saying, kind of- You're saying flaxseed, right? I'm not selling anything flaxseed, but it was kind of a joke because people would say, what's that license plate about? Mm-hmm. And you know, it was to me that the thing was that people were coming and saying, how many tablespoons was it? And what did you eat it with and whatever? And I said, it's not about that. It's about that I was led to research this and I did it and I did it for me and it seemed to be effective, but I don't know if it was effective or not. Right. Yeah, you'd be surprised of the things I have around here that I've tried on my time. And, you know, like flaxseed, I feel like for me, you know, it was, so it might have worked for a short time, but then it made me feel full. So, and it made me sick to my stomach after a while. So, right. of course, I had to stop that and move on to something else. And sure. I think what we're really trying to communicate to people here is that, um, that everyone's on their own journey and it's okay mm-hmm. to trust your own experience. Like just because uh, in a book somewhere it's scientifically proven to work doesn't mean it's gonna work for everyone. Everyone is their own unique little microcosm and mm-hmm. all these inv- factors in their environment are contributing to the success or failure of any one thing, right? And everybody's digestive system, their stomach is different. So, you know, not, nothing is the same in any person. And, it, and that trusting yourself isn't just, doesn't just come down to diet. I mean, they're, they're, you could take any aspect of society, people use it with religion, like uh, this religion works for me, therefore I'm gonna beat it over the head of everyone around <laughs> because it's going to work for everyone. And the reason I know is because it worked for me. Right. Yeah, I, I think that there, one of the big things for me is this, what I see as a kind of a conflict of interest maybe uh, that if I'm supposed to be trying to help somebody become more empowered, I can't really do that in an unbiased way if my livelihood depends on my convincing them to buy a certain right. thing for me or follow a certain program. Um, right. I don't know if I mentioned when we talked before, but I had a kind of interesting situation too. In 19, um, 
82 for seven years, excuse me, five years, sorry, five years, I lived with a registered nurse who had MS. And I was brought in after she'd had a surgery for a pretty serious pressure sore situation. And she was recovering, but wasn't able to drive. And she needed somebody to prepare her meals and help her with bathing. And I had been working with an agency that hired non-medical assistants to help people with disabilities. And I'd been working with it on a kind of come in basis with a bunch of different people. And I really enjoyed that experience tremendously. I, I just learned so much from all of the people that I dealt with. But they contacted me and said, we need a live-in situation. Would you consider it? So I interviewed with her. And because she was a registered nurse, she was very capable of showing me how to do you know, any minor thing that she needed help with. So the fourth year that I lived with her, I said, I'm going to have to leave because um, you know, I want to, I want to have a life of my own, but I also saw her as like the poster child for medicine. She worked at the university hospital where we lived and, and she was constantly taking, you know, all different kinds of drugs and things. And she also smoked cigarettes and, you know, drank hard liquor. And she just kind of um, wasn't receptive to anything that I thought was about you know, kind of living a more full life. Um, and so I realized that I, I was not going to, it wouldn't be good for me, you know, at that point in my late 20s to continue being kind of isolated and living with her, even though at that point I did have a career as well because she didn't need me all day. So I was only there, you know, evenings and weekends. But still, it was just... Um, I think I, while living with her, I thought, you know, if anything like this ever happens to me, I'm really going to approach it differently. And I, I have no reason to believe that that connection happened for any other reason. I mean, I, I, we don't know MS to be contagious in any way. There were many years between, you know, the time I was around her and when I was diagnosed. I don't know, you know, you could say it was just like a woo-woo spiritual foreshadowing. Doesn't matter. The point is that it did kind of prepare me because I knew something about what MS was, but also I knew how I didn't want to approach it. And uh, um, there was something I was thinking. So I know that uh, with certain chronic diseases that sometimes they are more prevalent in people who live or work in high stress conditions mm -hmm. and they seem to be more prone to this sort of thing how true is that for you well it, i definitely had that kind of lifestyle uh and i've met several people with ms uh more women than men i think statistically there is a slightly higher percentage of women than men not not a huge difference. Um, every single one of these women I would describe as a, an overachiever type A personality. And I don't think I thought of myself that way, but when I look back on it, I realized that I always felt like I had to be very successful by some kind of outside measure 
to overcome, you know, maybe some of my family issues or whatever. I don't know. But, but my, uh, so this isn't any kind of scientific uh, data collection process, but my, my uh, sense is that, yes, not only high stress, but a person who's very hard on themselves demands a lot of, of self and maybe isn't very good about self-care. So one of the first things with MS was, you know, I had this extreme fatigue. I would feel like somebody had put a pallet on me, you know, with a whole load of bricks and just getting up was that difficult. And so I tried to find balance between resting and then, you know, pushing myself a little bit. But the whole time I was just more focused on self-care than I had ever been in my entire life. I made sure I was eating well. I made sure I was, the things that I decided I needed to do for myself, I was going to get them done. But not in a, you know, type A way, more in a low-key way. Yeah. Um, Chris, do you have any? No, I think you're doing awesome. So um, what was the... Um, But you, when you, when you left working with her, you said you did what afterwards? Well, so then I had, I had a business career. I had already had a business degree. And so I, I was able to get a, a career position while I was living with her. And then I left that position and I ended up working with the company I mentioned that I was still with 11 years later after, um, the MS diagnosis. Oh, okay. And, and we had moved that company from one state to where we are now by choice after a kind of lengthy process of looking looking at different places. And so um, after diagnosis, I decided, you know what? I always liked being an au pair and a nanny when I was in college. Let me check mm -hmm. into that. And I was hired by a single mom with a 10-year-old who attended a private school, day, daytime private school. And I was very forthright with her about my situation. And I said, you know, I might need a nap in the afternoon or whatever, but I assure you, I can be, you know, very responsible with your daughter. Very, she'll be very safe. A lot of times she had business meetings in the evening or things she had to do. So she needed somebody to be there 24 seven. And it was a good, um, experience because I really got tuned back into um, sort of the joy about being around kids. And I did that for six years. And in the last year that I did it, I met my current husband of 23 years. He was um, a colleague of a woman that I was working for as a nanny. And apparently he was so impressed that she trusted me enough to leave her infant at home and come into the office and he wanted to know who was this magic woman who was, you know, making her calm and comfortable to go back to work. And so she decided to fix this up and it worked out very well. So I became an instant stepmom and then a biological mom a year later. Oh, I think that uh, kids and Kids of a certain age, obviously, I'm talking about teenagers, but I mean, young kids and animals certainly are very 
perceptive or attuned to, even though it's not verbalized or expressed to them, they're very keenly aware of what's going on and how they need to handle, treat you. And they don't you know, they don't like, um, obviously kids are always honest, right? Yeah. But um, they, they don't really, you know, we as adults, sometimes we have all these uh, things that we engage in. We just, uh, this kind of like, we treat everyone like over delicately. And we, we, I don't know, they just don't have any of those, those filters or those things that they go through, right? They're just oh, kind of here that way. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, it was fun because there were a lot of kids in this neighborhood. Uh, I would say probably ranging in age from three or four to, you know, mostly young teenagers. And some of the boys would be out playing, you know, hockey on the street or uh, somebody would be on rollerblades or whatever. And they'd say, oh, come on and, you know, do this. And and I found myself not saying, well, I don't know if I'm going to fall on my face or whatever. It just it, it really they, I found it very healing. It was a combination of being able to do something worthwhile and contributing that wasn't stressing me out. That was the opposite. Sometimes the parents stressed me out a little bit, but the kids were fine. And then also just engaging with the joy of, of you know, children, having fun and playing. And yeah, and they're also a lot freer and they're not overburdened by the stuff adults are burdened by right, right. don't have all that stuff I think but uh, well, well yeah. unfortunately I think some of them do <laughs> depends yeah. on the parents you know and what the yeah. parents uh, right. expectations are but yeah. yeah it was it was a great um, journey also I think that the other piece of it which I had learned somewhat when I was helping people uh, through access to independence, but I also learned is in this country, United States, particularly domestic types of services, people don't generally know how to deal with that. And, um, you know, people would say, you have a college degree, you know, why are you doing that? And I said, because I enjoy it, you know, because it's what I want to be doing right now. And, um, so again, it sort of got me outside of that box of this is what society expects of you at a certain point in your life. And being a bit older than the typical nanny, I also had the benefit of a lot more patience and a lot more life experience. Right. So, you know, uh, I had no problem keeping jobs. Let's put it that way. I was in high demand. And I, um this my own opinion like uh if you're if a lot of these diseases are made worse by being under stress why would you want to seek a job that you don't really want to do and you isn't within your life purpose to be doing right well I, it would I, seem right. that would just add to your stress I think that's true, but you know, again, in, in the MS community, I find a lot of people that I don't know well or personally, but they're just commenting, 
Uh, you know, I'm so afraid that I'm not going to be able to provide for myself. And so, you know, I think about the quality of life. And, you know, when I was lying there feeling like I could barely get up, what I was thinking about wasn't, oh, I sure hope I have enough, you know, insurance to last me till I'm 95. You know, I was thinking about I'd like to, I'd like to have a nice relationship with somebody. I'd like to have the joy of being a parent, maybe, you know, these are the things that were, and so I started putting my focus on that and, you know, it, it worked out. I'm not saying that you shouldn't have a life plan, but sometimes I think we do get a little over focused on it. I think some people go out of their way to make sure that underprivileged people are people that have gone through domestic violence or whatever. Um, so either there are ways to make sure they stay down and don't, don't get the help they need and don't have the resources they need always or make it hard to get if it is available. <laughs> And financially, that was a whole nother thing. People, you know, sure. especially big, big companies and whatnot, they don't care about whatever your situation you're going through. They just want their money and they are a lot of times very greedy. And, you know, the, the, the money that is available. Well, we have to shell it over directly to them, to those big companies. And uh, so the advantages, maybe like you were saying, you know, you wanted to have kids, get married, you know, of course, have your own home, stuff like that. Well, you know, if those things are issues, you know, then you don't have much to work with and you're not going to be successful at stuff. Well, I agree with what you're saying too about um, how society views other people. I, I find particularly in our town, which is undergoing a huge change, uh, house pr housing prices are you know doubling, tripling. I mean, it used to be a very affordable middle-class sort of family-oriented town. We, we live in a very modest house that is fully paid for. And the only reason it is, is because what it cost at the time that my husband first got it. But he's a frugal person and so am I. But those opportunities are not out there right now for other people. And I find a lot of people that I, I know them socially, they're not close, close friends, but they'll say something like, well, and I think this is an inner fear that they probably are projecting. Well, you know, I worked hard and I deserve what I have. Yeah. So then I will challenge them and say, well, you mean the other person doesn't deserve that? They're not equally worthy of whatever. Well, I'm not saying that, but, you know, I think people want to believe that if somebody is different in some way and seemingly has a harder time of it, it they want to somehow rationalize that um, that dis that difference, as you were saying, that you know that well in one way or another. And so, one of the things that's definitely happened for me is um, 
I feel it's kind of my responsibility to be a spokesperson at times for people who don't have a voice in situations and say, you know, I know how fortunate I am. Do you realize how fortunate you are? And maybe you have more capacity to be kind or help or do something than you realize you do. I think this is one key area where like the medical establishment and society as a whole kind of fall short. I mean, there's been some progress, but uh, there's this impression that uh, where is it going now? I'll try to change the thought. Okay, one second. Uh, going with this. Okay. So, wow, that hasn't happened well, like uh, a long time. <laughs> no, no, you were talking, you know. Yeah. Okay, where is it going? Well, we're definitely <laughs> gonna cut. Definitely couldn't have cut that part out. Well, well you are, I'm not. <laughs> but, um, um, oh yeah, here we go. Okay. Okay. So I, I was, I was uh, thinking that you know, there's this, there's this pressure or this subconscious messaging that's been sent to us that. Okay. There's this subconscious messaging that's been sent to us that, that medicine is the be all and the end all of everything, and that we don't we can't possibly have the cure or the um, within us. And uh, from what I can see, medicines and stuff like that, and all these therapies are like sort of masking mask like they're great for urgent care kind of stuff like you fall off your bike you scrape your knee get hit by car i'm sure the there's medicine that's gonna give you immediate relief and stop and really help you right but when it comes to chronic conditions they're must much less informed and it seems to me that the cure isn't necessarily in treating symptoms, it's treating the behaviors and the thinking and the um, that causes the symptoms in the first place. What what would you say about that? Sorry, that was kind of a long-winded question. I was trying to the little person in my head was trying to stumble around and find the pathway to the, my original thought. And, uh, it was not coming to me. <laughs> Why was interesting? Yeah. I completely, you know, agree. And of course, I had again that unusual experience of having lived with somebody who was taking every kind of thing at the time that was available. Um, and we had we had one situation. Well, we had two situations that I I think were kind of amusing. At one point, when I was driving her before she got hand controls, I was driving her to the hospital. There was this really dapper looking guy in a wheelchair who would be coming around and I was like, you know, kind of elbowing her and say, you know, wow, he's, I wonder who he is, you know, whatever. So finally he came over to our vehicle one day. He wanted to ask me out. 
because he had seen her in action when she was sort of complaining and fussing. <laughs> he liked the way I handled it. So I declined it, not because he was in a wheelchair, but because he was probably about 10 to 15 years older than I was. And I just didn't see it fitting right, you know, for where I was in my life. Um, and he took it very well. But then later I suggested to my roommate, I said, you know, they have this uh, accessible outdoor recreation program. But the city we lived in had phenomenal accessibility programs. And she said, I'm not one of those people. And I said, what, what do you mean you're not one of those people? You know, and that was kind of like the beginning of the end because I really felt like and, and so I think I'm coming back around the right because of all of her medical training and because she had been an oncology nurse, she tended to have that mindset that, you know, science and medicine was the answer. And after I lived with her for a year, I knew how depressed she was, that a major relationship had ended right before her symptoms started. And, you know, she wasn't exploring any of those things. She was only looking at it as this is a physical manifestation and I'm going to do those things. Second, just a, oh, not the weed eater. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh, God. Hold on. My, the window here in the yeah. big, so they can't be here long. <laughs> okay. So um, you were, uh, maybe she picked up where uh, you were talking about your roommate? Yeah, so, you know, I got to see living with her for five years, somebody who had completely turned over every aspect of, first, the diagnosis was accepted. I mean, I wasn't with her at the beginning, but I could just tell that because of her mindset, it was like, okay, I've got this diagnosis, and that means X. You know, it's going to go this way or it's going to go that way. And I'm going to take all the medications that they have available that will give me some kind of symptomatic relief or whatever. Um, but she wasn't interested in trying to do any physical therapy, any type of exercise, any type of anything. And uh, her, her life had become very, very small. I mean, she was a, an important person at the hospital because she got an administrative job after getting a master's degree, which is fine. You know, I'm, that's great, but she had that life and then coming home and, you know, there was, there really wasn't much joy in, in her life. And so it was, a, it was a huge opportunity for me to say, you know, I, I really wouldn't want to live that way because it's not much living when you're just sort of cutting yourself off from any kind of possibilities. So when I was diagnosed, I had the advantage of having at least some awareness of what MS was. I wasn't totally shocked, but I also knew, oh, I'm not, I, I don't want to do that. I, I'm not going to do that thing because I, I already know what that's like. And, um, you know, and, the, and the, the neurologists were very kind, but they were also very patronizing. And they had this wheelchair sort of in the corner of their examining room. And they'd say, well, when you need us, and they'd keep looking over at the wheelchair, you know, mm -hmm. come back. And I also went to a support group that was at the hospital. They did it for about four months. 
And it was really sad to me to see, not, not that people were coming and sharing and, and whatnot, I didn't have a problem with that, but there were some people that it was the same really downer thing every single time. And so then it would become my turn and I would say, well, this week I'm exploring this thing. I'm checking into that. And so finally the neurology nurse that led the group um, called me over at the end of the meeting and she said, you're upsetting the other patients. And I, and I said, well, what do you mean? She said, well, you know, you seem to be getting better and you're doing stuff. And so um, I was happy not to continue. I, I've tried two other groups since several years later, found a kind of a similar thing. Um, and again, you know, we all need places to commiserate and share things. I get it, but it just, there, the, the mindset was not about let's make the most of it or improve our quality of life. It was more, let's just focus on the, the problems and the negatives. And I think a lot of that is, uh, is uh, impressed upon us by society. Like if you're, if you're gravely sick or if you have a disability, then something's wrong with you. You're not perfect. And uh, you know, you have to be pushed off in the corner somewhere. Yeah, I think that's a really unfortunate place where we are in our society that we don't value, we're not taught to value the contribution that people make in, you know, in other ways. It's, it's got to be, you know, for, for the most part, your value is your title or your salary or, you know, how much stuff you have and not, I, I was really I, fortunate that I had, you know, women in my history, my, my grandmother, my paternal grandmother in particular, who, who never worked. I mean, she had a college degree because she was a minister's daughter and that was something she was able to get. Very, very bright person. But she would go and stay at the homes of somebody who was sick for, you know, three weeks or a month and just provide, you know, whatever domestic services were needed. And she was a highly respected member of her community, very, very authentically doing herself. And um, so I feel like, you know, we've kind of, and I don't mean that to be sexist, sexist, it could be a male doing that, a female doing it, anyone. It's just the idea that we've come to a place in society where like all those things now have to be hired. You, you have to hire somebody to come and do that, you know, and, and you don't, it's not just, you know, being a homemaker or whatever is considered to be, I always had people ask me like, what did you do before? Or what are your degrees in? And I'd say, well, what does that matter? We're at the playground with our kids right now. Is that relevant to what we're doing in this moment? Yeah. Yeah, society is so um, stuck on who we are and 
what we what our successes are are what we have journalistically or what degree we hold and I mean even if you do have a degree you know um there are people that are very humble about it and there are people that will like plastered everywhere let you know that they're in charge and you need to listen to them and they know everything and then that's it i don't understand how people are okay with that going forward how that hasn't worked in the past so why are people wanting that to still be a thing and it's funny i mean this um no i'm talking about more scientifically minded people will push this this idea of evolution which i'm not discounting in any way as uh, as true but people who are trying to sell this thing called evolution but subscribe to a way of living which is very tribalistic like you don't fit you don't uh, you fit in this box, therefore we're going to ostracize you and put you away from the tribe to keep us safe or whatever. It's just very, very divisive and very, I don't know. <laughs> I'm sure we could talk a lot about this. Well, and, and I find, you know, in my community right now, I'm quite into environmental things. I'm part of a group of people who are planting native trees and native fruits for birds, and we're just trying to carve out some part of this big urban area that's natural and somewhat you know habitat yeah. and uh, i've had several people say you know well that's so extreme or uh they're literally concerned about what their parents or their their, their grown-ups but what their parents or their in-laws will think if they are you know in some kind of fringe hippie group of people that is going out and you know planting trees and um or you know we're not going to say anything to the town council about something that we would like because we don't want to appear to be complaining and i guess i really feel like um i'm hoping that we may have a more collaborative um sharing society and hopefully it'll happen right. in a lifetime because as you were saying crystal what we've been doing is for you know what at least a few hundred years or a few thousand years hasn't really worked out very well overall well it worked for a short period but uh, surely we've evolved past the need to need for to exchange money for services or goods i mean obviously that probably is maybe still necessary but i mean just the the thinking and the emotions behind the greed and the selfishness that gets promoted we need to evolve past that yeah because like i said we've gotten into that's made us acceptable who that matters who we are, you know. Our, our, our existence depends on 
Well, we have to materially or, you know, what degree we have. And, you know, people need to get past that. Right. And we um, had a guest recently that we talked about that very thing that there are people in younger generations that are starting work that are afraid to tell their what they know and what they want to do and then their ideas because there's older generations that are stuck in their ways and not giving them an opportunity and oftentimes you know plantering them and cutting them down you know and not letting them so you know why not why isn't the older some of some of the older generation not taken into account that hey you know we were young once too and our some of our ideas are really good you know how about what if they want to take what we started and just make it better what's wrong with that instead of keeping it no change everything is the same and i'm sorry but what was what you started is not working anymore we've evolved well i do find in the local food movement around our city a lot of young people i'm really impressed with a lot of people between the ages of say 25 and 35 who are saying i don't want that lifestyle that my parents basically have spent their whole lives you know accumulating and working and not really having any uh leisure time or community or anything meaningful i want something different and um and i've been fortunate to get to meet those people and i do try to be exactly what you're saying we'll say hey you know even though i'm older i really value what you're bringing to the to the situation and i want to hear what your ideas are and sometimes you know I, I'm a, I, my joke is I'm a late boomer because I was born in 1959. So I'm kind of at the end of that. But as a late boomer, I do get those criticisms and jokes about, you know, you ruined the planet for us. You did this and you did that. I say, well, I'll take responsibility for, you know, my part of it. But, you know, I can also say, well, you didn't understand what our parents were like, you know? So I think, we have to be able to look kind of at cycles and look forward and look backward, but also realize that I like being with people of different ages. I want that. I, I think the worst thing I could imagine was be, would be put in a facility where everybody in there was an old person. You know, I, I wouldn't want that because it wouldn't be as interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's all where it starts, you know, people need to first, you know, be accountable and uh, acceptance, realizing that, hey, we've done our, you know, we've done our best with what we had, and now we have a new generation coming up, and even the ones now, 
for, you know, in the last 15, 20 years, you know, that, that are wanting to make our lives better and have new ideas, you know, and that's how society is supposed to work. But people are, you know, they're so, you know, I keep using the word go, no, but they're, you know, they don't want change. They want it to stay the same. No, I don't, I, and I'm, I think part of that, you know, is something I've thought about a lot in my life is if you say, well, I can see another way to do it, or maybe we could do it differently or better, is that somehow admitting that you were wrong or that, you know, everything you've done has been a waste of time? I, I don't know. I don't look at it that way. I, I look at it as, oh, good, you know, here's an opportunity to start something new and, you know, be, be flexible. But I think for some people, um, and, it, you know, maybe it's something that's come through society indoctrinating them or institutions or family or something that this idea that, you know, you have to defend what you're doing and keep doing the same thing because that validates everything up to that point. I would like to see, you know, some leaders and like political leaders and corporate heads and they just just come out and say, announcement, we made a mistake. For sure. We were wrong about something. We've changed our mind and now we are going to do it this way because we think this is better. Or we'd really like to hear what you would like us to do. Because um, uh, okay. there's so much time spent on, I think, you know, pushing out some product or service or idea and saying, this is what's best for you. Yeah. Um, and I'm just starting to learn that myself. There's so much that in the world where, um, where, you know, people see someone who um, maybe in their judgment and needs help, right? And so they try to help that person, but not in the way that person wants their help or in the way that person wants things done, which would be the most helpful to them. Um, usually the helper is trying to push their agenda. And I include myself in the subject because I can see now that it's been pointed out to me um, that, you know, sometimes a helper pushes their own agenda on the person and says, I can help, but no, we got to do it my way because my way is the best way or whatever, some ego driven thing. And uh, yeah, just, just a thought. <laughs> yeah, sometimes when I'm out at like a park or someplace, I'll see somebody who is has some equipment or, you know, a cane or wheelchair or whatever, they're getting in and out of their car. And because of all the years of experience I had with people who had different equipment, I, I'll just kind of, you know, stand back and say, 
I won't say anything, or I might say, is there anything I could do? Or, you know, anything I could help with or anything. And usually I would say 85% of the time I get a very pleasant, you know, no thanks or thanks for asking. And sometimes I get a little bit less pleasant response. And I don't even say anything in most situations if it's obvious the person is doing their thing. It's just sometimes there's like an awkward door, heavy door on a bathroom or something. And I, but I always, you know, ask first because I, I know um, I learned, you know, that you can actually mess somebody up, you know, who's they, they got their thing going on and they're doing it their way. And you just jump in there and intercede and, you know, it's, it's really unwanted. Uh, a lot of times, um, I think that people, they have, may have good intentions of wanting to help and be nice and be good, but there's, there's this deeply seated ego thing that wants to be the hero, <laughs> right? right? Wants yeah. to rescue the princess or, or whatever, or take take the take the guy that needs help and like help him and change him or whatever no yep and uh, i'm not saying it's easily changeable but no. it definitely exists i feel we still when we're talking with you we also discuss the that stresses of wanting to explain how they're a person with a disability. Maybe they have ideas or things they want to help advance their, you know, but the the neurotypical people in society often push down people with a disability. So, you know, especially when they suggest something that might work or might not work. So how do you propose that we should go forward with trying to explain with having a disability, how we should talk to people and, First, they have to get over their ego, right? When somebody has a disability, being able to communicate with them and without using any passive aggressive talk or, you know, first they have to get to that point. And then, you know, when you can maturely have a conversation between the two neurotypical and then the neurodivergent, you know, when we can do that, then, you know, then we can work together, make changes or try things or whatever. What do you think is the best way to do that? Mm -hmm. Well, I'm certainly you know, not an expert on that topic. Um, there were months and periods of time when I had some issues with, you know, really serious, what I would call brain fog, where it was hard for me to 
formulate my ideas. Um, sometimes, you know, my speech was affected a little bit. Um, but my observation from working with different people uh, and then some children and young people that I've been around uh, who have different neurotypes as far as learning or whatever is sometimes it's helpful to have someone there who is, I wouldn't say advocating, but just sort of eliminating um, misconceptions or, you know, any kind of like bully factor, for lack of a better word, that might happen. Um, I've, I've seen that done really well. Uh, and I had uh, a couple that I worked with that had cerebral palsy. And uh, we got, I noticed that when we were alone together in their apartment, we were just, you know, laughing and talking and the little ticks and issues that would come up when he was out, you know, maybe trying to get the bus or get to his job at the hospital in the coffee shop or whatever, they were pretty much gone. But they, you know, their parents didn't want them to get married because of their differences. They really, um, were hilarious and had brilliant things to say. And I considered myself fortunate to be able to spend time with them. And so I think that it's, it's kind of a matter of just educating people in a way that, so they'll understand that just because this person speaks differently or appears differently, this does not mean that you are condescending to that person or that you assume that the quality of what they have to contribute to this conversation is somehow limited by that because it isn't. So, you know, that's. Uh, that if, yeah, if you have to, you know, just because you have trouble understanding them or they're they're slower at their thought process or whatever doesn't mean that those ideas aren't there there's some i've over the past few years i've talked to so many disabled people that have amazing ideas and amazing thoughts and things they want to get out and they have ideas about that would really contribute a lot to companies and, you know, ideas about going forward in their future, you know, for society. But they often can't get out, get out what they want to say and what they want to do, you know, and that's really sad. And that's part of what we're doing. We're, we're, we're giving people a platform to be able to talk and explain their, you know, what they are about and what they know and what they love, you know, their, what's worked for them, their journey, you know. Absolutely. Um, and I think there's another, you know, form of discrimination that happens too, which is, is ageism. And I've, I've been very fortunate that my grandparents lived to be, my paternal grandparents, 93, 
and they were both incredibly sharp people my entire life. So I only knew them, you know, from 70s to 90s. But I'm as I'm going toward that point in life, um, I'm realizing that, you know, there's wisdom from all different kinds of paths and experiences. And I think that our society really uh, tends to keep programming us to think that you, know, you have to look a certain way and you can't have wrinkles and gray hair or, you, you know. You have to have this and you have to look like this. Right, that, that, those are the people that represent us. And in fact, you know, it isn't, it isn't that way. And so um, I'm hoping that I can be part of, through these local activities, having communities that really do, are inclusive. Um, and I have to also say that I, I get a little annoyed with what I think is sort of superficial virtue, virtue talk and virtue signaling now that isn't necessarily of substance. Um, when, when I say inclusive, I, I mean inclusive, not just we can check off the initials or the right this or that, and, you know, that's been taken care of. Yeah, that makes me so mad. You, you cannot be, just because you're, you can get in the door somewhere and maybe go to the bathroom, maybe doesn't mean that your company or your service is inclusive. <laughs> you know, you're only doing it because you're legally supposed to do it. Right. So you're not tricking anyone, you know. Um, well, I guess uh, before we go here, maybe can you talk about some of the stuff you're working on that uh, you can expect from you, or I mean, expect is a heavy handed word. <laughs> and don't no pressure no pressure or anything but i mean just maybe fill us in on if you're working on anything that you want to share okay well last yeah about i guess last spring in a rather short period of time i wrote kind of a memoir uh, about my healing experience and i decided I started recording it as an audio book with someone I know who was a sound engineer and then that kind of ended and I thought about it and I realized you know I've shared excerpts of this in some local two-hour workshops where people are coming and they're learning about local food and they're and we talk a lot about following one's own inner guidance on what they want, what you want to add or try or whatever. It's not about a prescribed diet, but I do tend to be, you know, mostly plant-based. So that's a, a bit of a push I try to make on, you know, eating a lot of varied plant foods. But anyway, um, I found that that worked really well as kind of a discussion prompter. And so what I've decided to do with the book is try to do some cohorts of people who are working on some kind of healing journey, or, or perhaps it could be expanded to just dealing with something that, some kind of change, um, and, and use the, the book as kind of a, 
framework for conversation. So that's that's where that stands right now. I felt that if I just published it, which I don't know how I would do that, but I've done a little research, it would be another book that somebody can say, okay, I'll put that on my shelf and I'll get to it later. And I want it to just kind of keep evolving and being updated. And, and then uh, just this morning, I decided to sign up for a form of, um, it's a special type of hypnotherapy that basically just kind of helps people to um, maybe discover or release things that could be contributing factors to illness, stress, you know, anything. And so this is a, a program that someone developed and did for many years and she's passed away, but her daughter who's a nurse has continued the program mm -hmm. and it's online. So for some reason, the last couple of years, I've, I feel like I'm in a transition from you know being mom to being more of a community person. And I'm doing a lot of local kind of activism, but there's also a sense on my part that that there really isn't any super urgency to this, that it's a it's about being patient and sort of letting these things unfold. So I'm trying to trust that process and you know, know that the timing will be right when it is. You have said um before when you're gonna start that program, when are you doing that? The um the, the hypnotherapy program? Yeah. Well, it's actually an online program at the first level, and I spent several hours working on it today. So I'm, um, you know, really going to try to complete it in two to three months, which is a pace that is extremely realistic. And then after I finish it, I'll do um, 10, there's a written test, and then I'll do 10 sessions to sort of, and document the sessions so that I can demonstrate that. And then there are another 15 sessions. And at that point, I'm, you know, a practitioner of the first level one practitioner. So that just seemed like a, a tool in the toolbox. I, I really love to cook with local foods. That's one of my passions. I do a lot of cooking for people, you know, friends and whatnot, drop off meals. And so I'm not sure, you know, what it's going to look like, but this is like my third act. You know, I had my business career. I had a healing journey, then I've been a mom and wife, and I'm still happy to be those things, but I feel like it's time for me to do something else that brings in all those pieces. Blessings, hi, things, hi. Well, certainly it has been a very enlightening conversation and um it's yeah. very stimulating and i hope uh, other people out there got a lot out of it is there anything else you wanted to add yeah okay well i really i really enjoyed it thank you so much for inviting me thank you okay thank you mary thanks for the your uh your time today and uh uh well Actually, one more thing for okay. I forgot. Where can where can people reach you if they wanted to uh, talk to you more? Is that possible? Uh, yes, it's possible. I think probably the best way to contact me is by email. 
and my email address is veganmaryc, the letter C, at gmail.com. And, you know, maybe they put it the, in the subject, you know, heard you on Mark and Crystal's program or something like that. Um, I try to respond to people pretty promptly. And I will also be glad to, you know, do like a cell phone call or something. Um, I find in general that usually people feel pretty encouraged, you know, when they talk to me, but I'm not an official coach, nor do I want to be. I'm not selling any products or services at this time. Um, but, you know, I'm definitely more than happy to connect with anybody. Right. Um, also, I have one more thing. Um, also, you have, have your Facebook group that that I, 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 I couldn't get in it to look at it. Um, <laughs> I have to be approved, but um, it, it's about your book, correct? Right. Um, so uh, the title of my book is Epiphany and um, <clears throat> My Healing Journey of MS from A to Z. So I started a Facebook page, excuse me, um, to sort of um, update the progress on that. And um, I'm not posting in there very frequently right now because that is a little bit tabled. But I can certainly um, email you that information. Um, like you said before, it was uh, great for you to join us. Thank you for spending some time to talk about your story and uh, hopefully we'll be in touch soon. And yes, uh, oh, I think we're done. <laughs> Never mind. I'll see you in a minute. <laughs> okay. Have a good day, Mary. Bye. Okay. Bye, guys.